Have you ever wondered where Christianity came from? Some would say that Christianity is just a white man's religion. That it was imposed upon people like enslaved Africans by Europeans, people who took these brothers and sisters, at least in the flesh, from their homeland, brought them to another country and imposed upon them their own religious beliefs and practices. They didn't have any choice. There was no kind of togetherness in it. There was no kind of fellowship or kind of same status. There was one group who had the power who brought another group and imposed their power and their religion and said, take it. And we, many of us, African-American and ethnic descent, are stupid enough to actually believe this white man's religion. I don't bring the, the topic up to be unnecessarily controversial. I bring it up because hundreds of years ago, this very day, on August the 20th, 1619, 20 or so enslaved Africans were stolen from their homeland by people of Portuguese descent and brought to the English colony of Jamestown beginning the horrific and sinful practice of slavery in America that lasted for two and a half centuries. So maybe it is true. I mean, maybe it is true that people were just brought here, taken here by Europeans who imposed this thing on us and we're silly enough to just believe it. The problem is, however, this kind of stumbling block called the Bible that actually shows us Something very significant, that Christianity didn't start around the 1600s in Europe and imposed upon a certain group of people who looked like us. No, rather, Christianity started 2,000 years ago. And not in Europe, but somewhere in the Middle East, in little place of Palestine and expanding down into Africa and other places and that the Europeans didn't invent the gospel and then impose the gospel. The gospel was brought to Europe by other peoples who wanted to share with everybody, no matter how they looked and where they were from, how good this actual news is. I bring that up because the book we began last week and we'll be studying over the next few weeks, the book of Philippians, is the book that Paul wrote to the Philippian church, which is the first church ever planted in the continent of Europe. And again, planted not by a European, but by a Middle Eastern Jewish man. You see, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus, expands beyond ethnic barriers and borders. It expands beyond geographic borders. And this message is not imposed upon people. You have to take it or you die. Right. At least not immediately. This gospel is shared and people hear it and they respond to it right out of their own volition. As God works in them and they give their lives to Jesus. It's what happened 2,000 years ago with the people in this book. It's what happened 200 or so years ago, 300 years ago, when enslaved Africans were brought to America, yes, the wicked practices of slave owners was mixed with their pious preaching about Jesus. But what these enslaved Africans heard was the good news about Jesus, even if it was inconsistently practiced by the slave owners. And how they responded was with repentance and faith. And that relationship between those who brought the gospel to them genuinely at points, right? And those who believed the gospel was not that of master and slave, but of partners in the same gospel. And the ones who brought us the gospel, no matter if they were our grandparents or parents or pastors, some people over us, when we believe the same gospel as them, we all get on the same playing field Amen. as partners in the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
is what we see in our passage this morning as we continue our study through the book of Philippians. And so if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Philippians chapter 1? And this morning we'll look at verses 3 through 11 together. This is a book written roughly 2,000 years ago. Again, to the Philippian church, the first church, the apostle Paul planted in Europe. They did not know the gospel at one point. Paul brought the gospel to them. It's written about 62 AD, so roughly 30 years after Jesus died. And yet that message was exploding all over the place into this place of Philippi in the uh, region of Macedonia. Philippians chapter 1, you can find it on page 980 of your Bibles. And if you need a Bible of your own, feel free to take the one under our cheers as our gift to you. We want everybody to have their own copy of God's Word. Philippians chapter 1, I'll read verses 3 through 11, then I'll simply just go through and walk through it together with you. Philippians 1, 3 through 11. The Apostle Paul says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Here's what I think is the main idea of this passage this morning. And so the main idea of the sermon, you can find it in your bulletin on the sermon notes sheet as well. Main idea, gospel partners are gifts from God and should then be prayed for, rejoiced over, and affectionately loved. Gospel partners are gifts from God and should be prayed for, rejoiced over, and affectionately loved. As we walk through these few verses together this morning, we'll focus our thoughts on the three actions the Apostle Paul models that I think are to be adopted by us toward fellow believers. So three points, three actions that we should embody and, and, and do. Number one, give thanks. For gospel partners. We see that in verses three through six. Give thanks for gospel partners. Number two, express affection towards gospel partners. We see that in verses seven through eight. And number three, and lastly, pray for the growth of gospel partners. We see that in verses nine through 11. So three points, give thanks for gospel partners, express affection towards gospel partners, and pray for the growth of gospel partners. Number one, give thanks for gospel partners. Now, where do we get this point about giving thanks from? Well, we'll look at verse three. The apostle Paul says, I thank my God. Friends, clarity is its own style. We're not trying to, to massage the Bible to manufacture the most eloquent sounding or intellectually deep arguments. No, the best preaching seeks to simply explain and apply what the Bible says and to show the congregation in the Bible where you get your arguments and your points from. That's why when I preach, I want you to have your Bibles on your laps open or on your phone somehow. That's what, why when I'm preaching, I want you following along in your Bibles as I'm going through these passages. That's why when I'm preaching, I give you points and tell you the verses I got those points from so that you can read those verses and see, is this Joker just making up stuff? Or is he actually seeing those things emerge or come up out of the Bible to give to us? And one of the best products 
of sitting under the right preaching of God's word is learning to better read God's word for yourself throughout the week. You, you see, you shouldn't just come to Sunday morning ex expecting the, the preacher to give this polished, eloquent sermon that's so deep and so profound that you could never get those things for yourself. No, the best product of right preaching is that the preacher proclaims what the Bible says so that the people sitting under the word throughout the week might know and have the right tools and right hunger to pick that Bible apart for themselves and say, I can do that too, right? I can get good meat and good milk out of God's word. And that's what we're trying to do at Temple Hills Baptist Church. We don't simply mean to elevate the man up here preaching on a Sunday morning, we mean to elevate the word that is being preached. So that's why I preach often here, but there's other brothers who preach throughout the year. We have guest preachers who come in from other churches. We care more about the word that is preached than the messenger who preaches it. Now the messenger needs to be right, but it's the word that's most important. And we want you to better understand and apply that word yourselves. If you are new to that, or you're a member of a church where that's not happening, where you go to church week after week after week, and you don't know what the pastor preaching, or where he get the points he preaching from, like he's, you know, open up, he read the Bible, but then he don't go back to that Bible not once throughout the sermon, you should leave that church. Right? You don't have to come to this church, you need to go to another church where the preacher practices reading the Bible, explaining the Bible, showing you what's in the Bible, and then helping you to live up under the Bible, right? You need to go to a church where the Bible is actually honored, where the Bible is actually respected, where God's word is just not something that we lean upon as a crutch, but that we stand up under, right? It is our authority. Here, we learn and see what the Bible says. And seeing here, we learn that we should give thanks for gospel partners as Paul clearly begins by thanking God. It's basic, but maybe a little too basic you might think. A little too basic for us to spend any significant time reflecting on it. And you might be thinking, yeah, 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 I know Paul says I thank my God. We, we all know that's a basic thing that believers should do. But friends, stop and reflect. Is that what you do? When was the last time that you thanked God? I mean, you've asked God for things, no doubt. And that's good. Paul will do that later on in this passage. We'll see that. But maybe more often you've complained against God, e even if it's veiled or secretive. And you've expressed discontentment over everything from the weather to your relationship status, to your pay grade, to being passed over for that promotion. I mean, if somebody poked at your heart at any moment of the day, what would pour out? Praise or pouting? Gratitude or grumbling? When was the last time you expressed gratitude to God? And it used to be that as soon as you opened your eyes in the morning, the first thing you did was say, thank you, Lord for giving me another day. Now you and me open our eyes and what's the first thing we do? We reach for that phone and say, thank you world for waking me up. What y'all been doing all night? It used to be that whenever you sat down for a meal, no matter how small or seemingly insignificant, you said grace. You prayed to God thanking him for giving you that little piece of pizza or a pretzel or an entire meal because all good things come from his hand. Now you and I scarf down meals so fast, meal after meal after meal with no mention or remembrance of God. The opening words of verse 3 then serve as something of a stark contrast to the ingratitude that often marks even believers' lives. Giving thanks to God is a basic thing, but so often we forget the basics. And so much of the book of Philippians and so much of the Bible is simply calling believers back to the basics. We should thank God. And Paul expands to some specifics here. He doesn't just thank God generically. 
He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership with me in the gospel from the first day until now. Let's examine and break down verses three through five more closely. Paul thanks God in all his remembrance of the Philippians. So first, Paul remembers these brothers and sisters. He thinks about them. Again, that doesn't sound so groundbreaking. But if you recall to last week when we looked at Acts chapter 16 and the planting of this church, we noted that Paul started this church roughly 10 years before the writing of this letter. It's been a decade-long span since he first started the church, since he first took the gospel to these believers, and they believed, and a, and a church was formed. And even at the current time of Paul writing this letter, Paul is in prison, probably in Rome, roughly 800 miles away from Philippi. And yet, for Paul, it is not out of sight, out of mind. Neither are Paul's thoughts self-consumed while he's in prison. His focus is not only on himself and his predicament, but on the Philippian saints. Paul thinks about the church. And when Paul thinks about the Philippian church, he prays for them. Verse 3, in all my remembrance of you. Verse 4, in every prayer of mine for you all. You know, when you hear about some, some tragic event on the news or the radio, or you read online of someone's death, people used to express our thoughts and prayers are with you. As we've progressed, or rather regressed, to be a more godless society, we've removed prayer from the equation, and now people simply say our thoughts are with you. But thinking of people only goes so far. I mean, it's nice and considerate, but it doesn't really change anything. Right? Thoughts don't really have any power. I mean, if one of you all texts me one night saying that you were stranded far away on the side of the road, and I text you back, I'm thinking of you. <laughs> You'd be like, who cares? I need your help. But if I said I'm far away, but I'm thinking of you and praying for you, then I'm enlisting heaven's help and heaven's power to do what I can alone cannot do. We need to let thoughts throw us to the throne room of God in his grace and plead to a merciful and mighty God to do far and abundantly more than anything we can ask or think. I mean, think of how many people you'd pray for daily if you adopted the simple practice. When I think of them, I'm going to pray for them. They ain't got to be them long 10-minute prayers. I'd be praying to church. They can be short little 30 second prayers, right? You ride by a, a member's house or a member's neighborhood, you think of them, just say a quick prayer. Don't text while you're driving and, and tell them I'm, I'm praying for you, right? You wait till you get home, right? You think about your son or daughter, your mom or dad. You think about brothers and sisters in the church. Just pray for them. Pray something specific that's going on in their lives or pray something scriptural that you don't know that is specific to them, but you know it's God's will for them. When you think about folks, pray for those folks. Paul remembers the Philippians. And when Paul remembers, when he thinks about the Philippians, he prays for them. And when Paul prays for the Philippians, what's the first thing Paul does? He prays, prays a prayer of thanks for them. He thanks God for them in prayer. And now again, that's instructive because when we do actually pray for people, when we pray for one another in the church, we tend to focus on what might be going wrong in people's lives and asking God to fix it. You know, what sin might be present in their lives, what hard situation they might be facing. But Paul thinks and prays, and when Paul prays, he first thanks. Later in the book, Paul would instruct the believers in Philippi, and by extension us, that Whatever is true, whatever is lovely, whatever is noble, if there's anything honorable, if there's anything praiseworthy, if, if there's anything commendable, to think on those things. 
And Paul, again, practices what he preaches. When Paul thinks about the Philippian church, he doesn't focus on their flaws and their faults. He focuses on their faith. He focuses on their fellowship. He focuses on the fruit of their faith. And Paul thanks God for them. Saints, what are you focusing on in each other's lives? And what is it that you can genuinely and joyfully thank God for when you pray for other brothers and sisters? For Paul, the reason he's able to have joy toward the Philippian church, the reason he gives thanks for them is explicitly there in verse 5. Look at verse 5. Paul says, because of your partnership with me in the gospel from the first day until now. Now that phrase, partnership in the gospel, it reminds us that Paul's main ministry was about spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. This man who once was not a Christian gave his entire life to telling people the good news of Jesus. Right, the good news that although we've all sinned against a good and a holy God and earned his just wrath, that this God responded not as he could have and should have responded in complete wrath and sending us all to immediate hell. This God responded in magnificent and patient and perfect love. Instead of sending us to hell, he sent his son for us to live the perfect life of obedience to his heavenly father that all of us made in God's image should have lived. And then to lay down his life and humbly take on our sins, to suffer in our place for things that he never did wrong. He loved us so much that he ate all the charges that we should have been charged with. He ate all the bullets that we should have had shot at us. He drank the full cup of God's wrath so that we wouldn't have to drink any of it. He died in our place as a sacrifice for us to God, saying, take my life for theirs. Jesus Christ really died for our sins. And then three days later, he rose up from the grave, showing that his death was full payment for all the sins of all those who turn from their sins and put their trust in him. And he commands us all that to turn from our sins, to repent, and to believe, to trust in, to depend wholly and only upon him for salvation. Friends, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, if you've never done that, will you this very moment repent and believe of your, uh, believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? So that you can belong to God and have confidence in this God who loves you and will grant you eternity with him and entrance into heaven. Don't let today go by without you doing that, without you repenting and believing. The Apostle Paul gave his life to making this message known. I mean, this message, how many times did Paul tell people the gospel? And yet he never tired of it. I think he never tired of it because he never tired of what the gospel had done to him, right? Here he was in prison writing to Christians like, where did this come from? It came from the Lord Jesus. He never tired of it because he kept on seeing what the gospel was doing to other people. It was saving folks. It was sustaining folks. Friends, when this word goes out, I don't care how folks might respond with their faces or with their words. They might look hard and stone-faced. They might curse you out to your face. But if the Lord won't save them, He's going to save them. And he's not going to just do it apart from you. He's going to do it through you and through your faithful proclamation of the word. Paul gave his life to making that word known, to testifying of Jesus and the Philippians partner with him in it. But how? What does partnership in the gospel mean? I mean, it's the kind of phrase that at first glance is abstract enough for us to frame it in overly spiritual terms. Right. Partnership in the gospel means that the Philippians were with Paul in spirit in his gospel ministry. Or they share the same gospel ministry as the Apostle Paul, testifying of Jesus in their own lives, in their own spheres of influence. Or they partnered with Paul as they prayed for him often for his ministry. Now, all those are definitely true. But you know what this partnership in the gospel was primarily? It was helping to fund Paul's ministry by their financial giving. So if you got your Bibles, turn with me 
one or two pages over to Philippians chapter 4. And let's start and get verse 14. Philippians 4, so same book, same author, starting at verse 14. Look what Paul says. Paul says, starting at verse 14, it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. A few verses later, Paul says in verse 18, I have received full payments and more. I am well supplied having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. These Philippians sent financial gifts. They sent money to help provide what Paul needed to make the gospel known in other places. They started from the first day that Paul brought the gospel to them, and they've continued it consistently even up to the time of the writing of this letter. It's Ten years later. And notice again how Paul describes them. Not as simply supporters. Not as constituents. Not as uh, on a lesser or lower scale than him as, as he goes out and does the real hard frontier missions work of taking the gospel to unknown places and facing all kinds of unknown danger. No, Paul calls them partners in the gospel. But Paul, all they're doing is sending you money. Yes, but your treasure is where your heart is. And they so treasure Christ that they sacrificially give to see that Christ is proclaimed throughout all the world. I, Paul, can only minister out there as they send funds to help me. The apostle and the Philippians are partners. I think it shows us that we all have a role we play in the Great Commission of taking the gospel and making disciples of all the nations. Some are goers and others are senders, but we all are partners. I pray that encourages you. And this seemingly unspectacular things that you do as a Christian and church member, things like what we just did before the sermon when you put money into a little plate, or things like what you do Throughout the week, when you click on a button and you transfer money from your account to our church's account, that seems so boring and unspectacular and so businesslike and administrative. Right, but as you set aside money to give, during that time when you actually give, don't think of it simply as a routine to do with no real effect. Think of it as an act of worship and witness. You're worshiping God by giving him but a small portion of all that he's richly given you. And you're giving it in order to bear witness of his son, Jesus Christ, whom he loves to bear witness about. You're partnering in the spread of the gospel. And through your giving, you pay for the upkeep and maintenance of this property a place where people in Temple Hills and elsewhere can come and hear the life-transforming gospel of Jesus Christ. Through your giving, you help sponsor events like yesterday's back-to-school event for our community where we were able to share the gospel in English and Spanish and show the kind of big-hearted generosity that the gospel produces in people like us. And through your giving, you pay my salary. And allow me to set aside specific time to carefully prepare to bring God's word to you and to equip you as the saints to do the work of the ministry. Through your giving, we partner with other churches in different networks we're in. The SPC, the Southern Baptist Convention, or ACME, the Association of Churches for Missions and Evangelism, to take the gospel to Southeast Asia or Central Asia or the United Arab Emirates. And saints, I thank God for your partnership with me in the gospel. And I'm thankful for what the Lord is doing and will continue to do in and through us. Look at verse 6 there in Philippians chapter 1. 
Paul has that same premise and thinks about what the Lord will continue doing in and through the church. Paul says in verse 6, and I am sure of this. Of what? I am sure that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. What is the good work Paul is referring to here? It could be the Philippians financial giving and partnering in the gospel. But more broadly, it refers to the work of salvation that God began when Paul first brought the gospel to the Philippians and that transformed their lives and their priorities. I mean, Paul preached and laid down the seed of the gospel, but God caused that seed to bear fruit. God worked the miracle of the new birth, turning spiritually dead sinners into instantly spiritually alive saints. God gave the gift of salvation. And Paul says here that God is not like some petty and petulant boyfriend. He doesn't ask for his gifts back. No, God is like a devoted husband to his bride, the church. What he gives, he protects. What he gives, he nourishes and cherishes. He grows. He matures and he will bring it to fruition, to fulfillment and completion on the day when his son, Jesus Christ, returns. What a comfort to know that God never has any incomplete assignments. God is not like some would-be handyman husband. No, what God starts, he always finishes. God who began a new people project when he saved us is at work in us and he will never abort his mission. He will produce fully formed disciples that bear his image. It's why Paul in these opening verses doesn't thank the Philippians for their partnership. He thanks God because their fervent zeal for the gospel and their love for the apostle Paul demonstrated by their giving to support him did not come from them. It came from God, the God who is working in them to desire and to do good. You think about that. These Philippians were just like us, right? At one time they were spending their hard earned money on themselves, right? They was going to the liquor store or to the corner store. They was going to the weed spot, right? They were going out gambling, right? They were using their money for all kinds of crazy purposes. And now they're using that same money, right? Hard earned as it was, right? To see somebody else's name proclaimed, to see somebody else get glory and not themselves, right? Who started that? Who produced that? It was the Lord who produced that. God began that work. Their simple act of giving and partnering was a product of God's good work that he began in them and that he would bring to completion. And so Paul thanks God for his perfecting work through the Philippians in their partnership. We should thank God for gospel partners. They are his gifts for the spread of the gospel and for our good and his glory. Second in this passage, we see we should express affection towards gospel partners. Express affection towards gospel partners. We see that model in verses 7 through 8. And look there, Paul says, It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Now, what, what is the this way that Paul says is right to feel? It's right for me to feel this way. Well, reading in context is what he's just stated in verses 3 through 6. Confidence in God's work in the Philippians and gratitude and joy to God for their partnership. Paul says these sentiments are not out of place, but that it is fitting. It is appropriate to have these thoughts about the Philippian church. But, but his reasoning is what's strange. I mean, Paul doesn't say it's right for me to feel confident and grateful to God for you because of the doctrine of election. That God chooses some from before the foundation of the world and protects their salvation throughout their time on earth. 
Neither does he explicitly talk about the doctrine of sanctification as the grounds for his gratitude and confidence. The fact that God engages Christians in a lifelong process of becoming more and more holy until the day Christ returns. And we will be glorified altogether holy like him. No, Paul does not lead with doctrine. Paul leads with affection. He says, it's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. He wants the Philippians to know that they have a special place in his heart and mind. He wants them to know about his deep love for them. A love that is grounded in their actions. He loves them because they've stuck by him. They've been with him through thick and thin, through trials and triumph. They've been partakers, he says, partakers with me of the grace of the gospel, both when Paul has been locked up, like he is now when he's writing this letter, and when he's out and about defending the gospel and affirming the gospel's essential truths. Now, again, Paul has all the right doctrine in him. He knows the Philippians' partnership is not self-produced. That is the evidence of, of, of the work of salvation that God is beginning, had begun, and is maturing in them. I mean, he just stated that in the previous verses, that, that thanking God for his work in these Philippians. But just because God is working, does it make Christians simply spiritual tools or robots? Just carrying out the commands from our manufacturer. No, we do the hard work of engaging in gospel ministry, of partnering with gospel ministers, and what it creates is a deep bond between us. A bond that reflects the deep love between God and us. So that Paul can say to these Philippians in verse 8, that I yearn for you all, I long for you all, I desire to see you and I desire your overall well-being with nothing less than the affection of Jesus Christ himself. God is my witness. That's how deeply I feel about you all, which is incredibly deep. Considering the deep affection that Christ has for us. I mean, the Bible is not measured in expressing the triune God's emotions. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. It was the father and son's love for us that led to the son's sacrificial death for us so that we might be saved. And that deep love of the father and son for us amazingly becomes ours as we grow more and more like Jesus. And as we grow more and more together in his gospel. And Paul isn't related to the Philippians by physical descent. Paul didn't grow up with these Philippians since childhood. They didn't go to the same high schools. And yet there's a deep love that's been formed between them in Christ Jesus. As our sister Shantae shared with me in studying this passage this week, this is how blood-bought family members should feel about one another. Right, what's to characterize Christians is love. For one another. A love that's fueled by our partnership in the gospel. As Paul reflected how the Philippians have stuck by him all these years through all these kind of different challenges, it brought him to express his love for them. And saints, as we reflect on how we've stuck with each other, as we've stuck by each other, holding on to the same gospel, defending the same gospel all the time we've been together through trials and tragedies and triumphs, it ought to lead us to express our love for one another. You know, one of the, the privileges I think the Lord has given me over the last couple of years is to be invited to go to different places and different churches to, to preach, to fill a pulpit or preach for a friend on a Sunday morning. I'm grateful for you guys' generosity and allowing me to, to do that. I think it's one way that we show that we are in partnership in the gospel with others and not in competition in the gospel with others. But without fail, whenever I visit another church, no matter how big the building is or packed the building is, no matter how banging the music is, no matter how many programs they are, it makes me more appreciative of this church. 
and more affectionate towards this church. I mean, no doubt as a Christian, I love all churches, but because of our shared time together, because of our shared history together, because of the intimate partnership in the gospel that you and I have partaken of through God's grace, through so many years and so many challenges, I hold you all in my heart. I love this church. That's good for pastors to communicate. That's good for church members to communicate to one another. Right? The Apostle Paul lets them know, I love you. That ain't soft. That's Christian. That's what saints do. Saints love and saints encourage and equip and strengthen each other by expressing that love for one another. We should express affection towards gospel partners. Third and lastly, we see in this text, we should pray for the growth of gospel partners. Number three, we should pray for the growth of gospel partners. You know, Christians are greedy. Perhaps you already peeped that yesterday at the event where you saw these orange shirts circling back around and around again for more empanadas or burgers. I ain't calling no names. <laughs> or more seriously, perhaps, that's, that might be your thought as professing Christians at churches you visited sometimes shake you down, it feels, or beat you down for money at any church event. You're like, dang, they asking for money at the youth group? <laughs> Always asking for more and more and more. But there is a sense when it's good for Christians to be greedy, to ask for more and more and more and more, and it's when it comes to spiritual growth. I mean, Paul has just expressed his deep love and affection for the Philippians, a love that is seemingly reciprocated, as expressed by the Philippians' continued partnership with Paul. But Paul is not content. He wants their love to multiply, to grow. So what does Paul do? Paul prays that their love would abound more and more. And notice a few things here. First, notice the diversity of Paul's prayer life. He began earlier with a prayer of thanks in verses 3 through 6. And now he moves to another kind of prayer, a prayer of petition. Asking God for things. I mean, that's something of the basis of why we incorporate different prayers into our service. Uh, prayers like the prayer of praise that Brother Delano led us in earlier, praising and thanking God for who he is and what he's done. And why we have a pastoral prayer of supplication or petition where we ask God for different things for us and for others. A second, notice here just Paul's instincts. When Paul wants to see something produced in others, or when Paul wants to see something more on display in others, he doesn't strong arm them into submission. He doesn't employ manipulative tactics to get what he wants. He doesn't use harsh language or even passive aggressive language as a means to accomplish his purposes. No, Paul asked God to work. And that's such a needful model for us. Some of us want to see real and deep transformation and growth in our spouses, in our children, in our family members and friends, in our neighbors and our nation. And our first instinct is that we can do or say something to them to make them change. But in doing so, we overestimate our ability and underestimate God's ability. We need to talk to the Lord and not so much to them. We need to pray for the Lord to work. We need to ask him to bring transformation and growth and to trust that he will act. That's what Paul does. Third, notice here the aim of Paul's prayers. They're spiritual in nature. I mean, if you look throughout most of Paul's letters and most of Paul's prayers in his letters, he doesn't often pray for changes in the situations of himself or his readers. He prays for spiritual fruit to be developed in the midst of any kind of situation. Which leads to another thing we notice here, Paul's great expectation. 
Paul doesn't think there's a graduation stage at some point in the Christian life where you stop rising. Paul doesn't think there's, there's, there's a point where you reach at the end of kind of pietistic puberty and you just stop growing. No, spiritual fruit can increase. Love that's already present among the Philippians and for Paul can abound more and more and more and more and more and more and more. Paul prays for it to be such. He shows us here something of the limitless resources of heaven. God is love. And as God is infinite and eternal, so he can forever pour out the rich blessings of who he is to those he made in his image and has remade in Christ Jesus. You'll never pray to God for more and hear the reply, oh, we're kind of running low up here. Right? Heaven never has a sign of out of stock. There's a limitless resource of all of heaven's gifts towards God's people. You can ask for as much love until the day you die. and You'll never run out of God's love. You see, you don't cap off in the Christian life, right? There's more of us to experience as we grow more into the likeness of Christ. The problem is never that God doesn't have enough. The problem is that we don't ask enough. Ask. And you shall receive is Jesus' bold challenge to every Christian. What might it mean for us to ask God for our love to abound more and more and more? By asking that our love for him and his word might grow. That might be one thing. We ask, Lord, help my love for you and your word abound more and more. That we might deeply desire fellowship with the Father and the Son through the Spirit, through the means that he's given us already, through reading the Bible and praying and, and gathering with the saints in church. Friends, understand me here. If your affections for the Lord and his word and his people are low, it does absolutely zero good beating yourself up about it. You don't need to keep telling yourself, oh, I really suck that I'm not a, a, a good enough Christian that my affections for the Lord are low. That does absolutely nothing. Ask God to grow what's low in you. It might also mean asking that our love for each other would grow to the point where we willingly and sacrificially give of our time and resources even more than we are now. Right? Don't, don't think I'm doing enough already. Right? Praise God for what you are doing and trust that the Lord can do even more in and through you. Right? There may be seasons for that. There might be cycles for that. But trust that the Lord is meaning to grow you and not for you to stay stagnant spiritually. We can pray that our love would grow and grow and drive us towards developing deep relationships with people in our church who don't have the same interests as us, who don't like sports, who don't homeschool their kids, right? who don't vote like us. Right? Pray the Lord would grow our love to be so deep as the deep love of Christ for us right? that breaks through all these barriers that are lesser than the deep unity that we have in Christ Jesus. That we can pray for our love to abound more and more and more for our neighborhood. Not just that we be a church in this neighborhood. Not just that we have events aimed at our neighborhood. But that God would grow in us a deep, deep love for our neighborhood and for our neighbors. Is that present now? If not, ask God and trust God to give. The love that Paul prays to abound isn't isn't out of there, out, out of nowhere, that, that can't be attained. It can be had. But, but notice here, it's, it's also not a foolish or rash or blind love. It, it isn't love on the world's terms, a kind of love for and of all things. Neither is it a kind of squishy, undefined love. You know, the, the culture we live in loves kind of squishy, undefined love. Love is love. That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life. It, it makes no sense. Now, notice Paul prays for love to abound along with knowledge of God's word and his will and discernment. If you want to know the kind of God-intended love that the Lord means for his people to have, this afternoon just read 1 Corinthians 13. He fleshes out what love looks like in action. No, love isn't love. No, love is patient. Love is kind. Love is long-suffering. Love is gentle, right? Love uh, rejoices in the truth. L love does not hold bitterness, right? Love is definable by a God who is love. Right. Read his word, 
right? Paul prays for there the, to be love, a growing love, with a growing knowledge of what the Lord wants and wills, and a growing discernment. And then look at the, the purpose there in verse 10. So that God's people might approve what is excellent, and not approve what, what is at enmity with God. That we might discern what's best to do, not based on our own desires, but a God-filled, God-informed love for him and to honor his name in everything. To the end, to the goal that we might be pure and blameless, able to stand upright and with integrity on the great day when Christ returns. Again, notice Paul looks to the future return of Christ to motivate and move us towards spiritual progress now. When we see him, and we will see him, there is a time coming where Jesus Christ is coming back. And when we see him, we don't, be, we don't want to be running out of gas. We don't want our spiritual tanks near empty. No, verse 11, we want to be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. We want to be overflowing with the evidence of our right standing with Christ with the fruits of a holy and righteous life in God's sight. We want to have spiritual fruit growing, giving praise to God who gives and matures that fruit through his people's prayers and perseverance. Now, saints, that's the picture of the Christian life that we ought to have for each other. The Christian life will be a struggle, but that does not mean that every Christian should be struggling spiritually. You understand that the Christian life will be a struggle, but it does not mean that every Christian should be struggling spiritually. It should not be abnormal to see a Christian growing. It should not be abnormal to see a Christian growing in holiness and love and patience, growing in taming their tongue, growing in forgiving their enemies. No, what should be abnormal is Christians not growing the root of which may lie in Christians not praying for each other to grow spiritually. Are you discontent with your own spiritual growth? Are you easy to see how others are failing to grow spiritually? Well, when was the last time you prayed for them to grow spiritually? So saints, pray for the spiritual growth of gospel partners, of other church members, of other churches. You can come back this evening at 5 p.m. as we practice that by praying through this passage. Gospel partners are God's gifts to us. Amazingly, God has saved us and then surrounded us with so many other millions and billions who share this same gospel and are meant to be with us in this journey. Gospel partners are God's gifts, and they should be prayed for and rejoiced over and affectionately loved. Let's do one of those things even now and pray to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gospel partnerships in this local church that you have produced. We pray that even through the proclamation of your word now, you might bring somebody into that partnership, Lord, through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. If there are some who need to know more about Jesus, who need to give their lives to Jesus even now, Lord, don't allow them to leave without speaking to one of our members, without speaking to me, one of the other pastors. Lord, we pray that you would cause it to be new, new birth, new fruit. Lord, we thank you for the fruit you've already borne. We pray that you would mature it in us. Lord, even throughout the rest of this day, even throughout the rest of this week, may Christ be magnified in our lives, we pray. We praise you for the work you've begun in us, and we know that you will bring it to completion when Jesus Christ returns. Lord, we thank you for keeping us day by day. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.